0: Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I do just want to say while you're turning there, it is such a privilege and honor to be a part of this church. I want you guys to know how much you mean to Jamie and I. How much we care for you and love you. and In many ways, that's hard to express with words. But I just want to say thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for letting me open God's Word to you this morning. And uh, thank you for being faithful to study it. We find ourselves yet again in Luke chapter 1, but this time in a different passage of Scripture. We find ourselves now turning our attention and looking at the birth of Jesus being announced. And so this is the first explicit passage in Luke's Gospel mentioning Christ. And so this is an exciting time for us. We've looked at John the Baptist. We've looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth. We've looked at Luke's intent for writing this Gospel. We've looked at what we can learn about God and His interaction with people. But now we get to turn our attention to Jesus. We get to study Christ and see what Luke has to say about our Lord. So this passage we come to this morning, it is one in which we should stand in humble adoration of as believers. Because here, we find the story in the beginning and the announcement from the angel that our Messiah, our Christ, our God is going to come into flesh, going to come into humanity, going to come into the earth for us. And so this passage is one that causes great celebration in our hearts. And so I'm excited to come to it. I'm excited to look at it. I'm excited to see what Luke has to say about our Lord Jesus, even from the beginning of His coming to earth. But, like with Zechariah and like with Elizabeth, there's something that we can learn here first about the servants that God has chosen to use in the birth of Christ. Particularly Mary and Joseph. There's something we can learn about the life of Mary and the life of Joseph that is greatly important for us, impactful for us. What we see in Mary's life here in this passage is an outstanding example of faith. An outstanding example of what it means to trust in God. Faith, it really is the central foundation of our Christian belief system, isn't it? It's the central subject of how we live as children of God. Everything about our walk with Christ is built upon faith. And in my first few years of ministry, I've learned something quite clear and quite common among believers. We struggle with following and submitting to God in faith. It's a real issue for us. We want to know the next step in life. We want to know the outcome. We want to know the means of getting to a certain place. We want to know our destination in life. What God would have us do with our lives. Faith is a great issue of our hearts. But sometimes, we've all learned by experience, I'm sure, sometimes God calls us to step out in faith Not knowing our next step. Not knowing what's coming next. Not knowing even our final destination, the outcome, or how He's going to bring a thing about. Sometimes, God asks us to do things in this life that seem impossible, that seem difficult, that seem daunting, and He asks us to do them in faith all the complexities of our life, all the issues in our lives. We wonder, how is God going to reconcile this? Is God going to resolve this? How is God going to bring me through on the other side? What do I need to do about this? And often God's answer is wait, be patient, trust, and have faith. God looks at a man like Abraham and He says, Go, I want you to go to a place where I'll eventually tell you. Pack up and leave everything and just start going. And I'll tell you where you're going to end up. And in life, He does the same thing for us, right? Trust, have faith, go, do this, and I'll give you the details later. And we struggle with that. We struggle with submitting to God in faith. And what I mean by that statement is that it is... One thing to submit to God. And and I mean submitting to God's known will, God's known decree, God's known commandments, God's known conviction. We open up the pages of Scripture, we see what God desires of us, what God expects, what God commands us, and we submit to those things. So it's one thing to submit to God's known will. It's quite another thing to submit to God in faith. When He gives you instructions to do something... And you don't know the outcome of that something. You don't know the means of accomplishing that something. That's what we see with Mary and Joseph in this passage today. God calls Mary out to do something in faith that she can't even fully understand. And so it's in that light that I want us to examine this passage this morning. That I want to examine the announcement of Christ concerning Mary and Joseph. Because they are a couple unlike any other couple in Scripture. They're a couple unlike any other couple that's ever lived. And they are called to submit to God in faith not certain how the events described by the angel are going to play out, how they're going to come about. They're called to submit to God in faith in the face of a daunting task. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're charged with raising the forerunner to the Christ. Mary and Joseph are charged with raising the Christ. Daunting task. They're called to have faith in the midst of something they can't do on their own, something they can't completely understand, something they can't even explain. But God says, I'm calling you to this. And so faith is the issue that we want to look at this morning particularly submitting to God in faith. Because Mary does that. Mary's an outstanding example of faith. An outstanding example of following God in faith. And so we want to ask the question quite naturally, don't we? What was it in Mary's life that caused her to trust God in the midst of unforeseen and inconceivable circumstances? What was it about Mary that God could call her to do something totally out of the realm of human possibility and she responded with complete, undaunted faith. And how can a priest like Zechariah doubt God, but a young girl like Mary have faith in God? How can a man who has been faithful for decades question God when the angel appears to him but a young girl who's barely been alive for a single decade have complete faith in God when the angel speaks to her. And for us, particularly, what do we learn in Mary and Joseph's lives that can spur us on to submit to God in faith? When we're faced with things we can't understand. We're faced with the situations of life we can't even grasp our minds around. And we have no idea how God is ever going to resolve that situation. How can we, like Mary, respond in faith? Let's start first by reading the passage. And then we'll come back and we'll look. begin looking at the couple that God is choosing. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke writes and he says, in the sixth... And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your word. And the angel departed from her. The first thing we want to look at in this passage is in verses 26 and 27. They are a humble couple. Mary and Joseph. They are a humble couple. And I don't mean humble In the sense of the attitude of being humble. Humility. I mean humble in possession. They don't live and they don't have an extravagant life. That's something of significance. In fact, humility in attitude. And in not being encumbered by the things of the world. That humility is key to submitting to God in faith. And that's what we find in Mary and Joseph. They're a humble couple. So we see here in verse 26, the angel, the same angel, Gabriel, that appeared before Zechariah in the temple is now sent to visit with Mary. And I want to highlight a simple phrase there. He's sent from God. That's important for the passage. Because that means everything the angel has to say comes from God. He has divine instruction to give a divine message to divinely chosen servants. That's the angel's purpose in coming. And what we see in the angel coming sent from God to Mary and Joseph is that just as God chose Zachariah and Elizabeth, He's also chosen Mary and Joseph. For the same reason He chose Zachariah and Elizabeth. To prove that what is going on in their life is something only He can get credit for. What's going to happen with them is only something He can receive the glory for. But although they're chosen like Zachariah and Elizabeth were, they are vastly different from Zechariah and Elizabeth. They stand in complete contrast to the older couple. First, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're well known. And they have positions of authority. They're well known because Zechariah is serving as priest in the temple. Everybody knows who the priest is and who's serving who's burning incense. They also have positions of authority because Zechariah is priest in the temple. Dictating what's to be done at a certain time reciting the rituals, and so on and so forth. Mary and Joseph, they are not well-known, and they have no positions of authority. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they've been married for many years. They're now older, and they're more mature. They have the wisdom of experience. Mary and Joseph are not even married yet. They're Young, and they lack experience. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they have tried for children unsuccessfully many times. Mary and Joseph haven't even tried for children yet. They are, by all accounts, different from Zachariah and Elizabeth. And they are in a more humble estate when the angel appears to them than Zachariah and Elizabeth were. They're vulnerable before God. We even see that with some signs of their humility in the passage. Like first, they're from Nazareth. The angel sent to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. He's not sent to Jerusalem Jerusalem like we would expect the Messiah to be born in. He's not sent to Jerusalem like he was with Zachariah and Elizabeth. He's sent to this little city of Galilee called Nazareth. And really that term city is misleading when it pertains to Nazareth. Because the Greek word for city does not denote population like it does today. It denotes communities. Nazareth was an insignificant, obscure little town. And by the best archaeological evidence of the day during the time of Mary and Joseph and the life of Christ, Nazareth had no more than 500 people living in it. It is only mentioned... Twelve times in the entire Bible, and all twelve times it's mentioned in the New Testament in connection with Jesus. That means it's not mentioned once in the Old Testament. That's how insignificant Nazareth is. It's not mentioned in any other extra biblical Hebrew writings. It's not even mentioned by Israel's most famous historian, Josephus. In fact, After the Bible, in the early years around the Bible, it's only mentioned one other time outside of the New Testament, about 200 years after the New Testament is written. It has no trade routes in it. No tourist attractions. No political significance. No influence in the country. Everybody passed around Nazareth. Nobody traveled to Nazareth. It is an obscure insignificant little town and yet this is where our couple comes from where the angel meets them they have an extremely humble background from an extremely humble location they're not well known and they're not popular like other people in the day wouldn't you think that christ would be born to the high priest or the king or somebody of influence mary and joseph are plucked out of a little town in northern israel Yes, they do come from the house and lineage of David as the angel points out there, as Luke points out in this passage. But they by no means live like David lived. They may have royal blood in their line, but they're not living like royals. Other texts in the Bible tell us that Mary and Joseph were poor. They couldn't even afford the right sacrifices at the temple. They had to settle for the poor man's sacrifice. We know from other texts, Joseph is merely a carpenter, not a wealthy, powerful businessman. He builds things with his hands for a living. They have a meager existence. They are a humble couple. And that's the couple the angel comes to. That's where he finds them in this humble existence. And then Luke tells us two things about Mary. The same two things. He calls her a virgin. Twice. That's the only description he gives of Mary. He tells us about Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're righteous and blameless before the Lord. But he says nothing about Mary's character. She's a virgin. And in fact, the word that he's using to describe Mary's virginity would never be used to describe a married woman. It is only used in Scripture to describe a young girl Who's never had any sexual relations. We learn from that word that Mary's young. Probably, by the best estimates, anywhere from eleven to thirteen years old. And so there's something significant there. Youth is never something that God has despised or overlooked. Be used by God in your youth. But Mary is a young girl. We also learn that they are betrothed from the passage. That's deeper than engagement. We often associate betrothal with engagements, but in this time for Mary and Joseph, it is much deeper than an engagement. It's a binding legal contract that could only be broken by death or divorce. In fact, if Joseph were to die, Mary would be regarded as a widow. That's how significant it was to be betrothed. Betrothal was something that was arranged by their families. It was something that lasted for a year where their wife was to prove her purity and her faithfulness. And the husband in that time was to prove his ability to provide, protect, and shelter his family. He would spend most of that time building their house, proving that he could take care of a family, take care of a wife. At the end of that year period, they would have a seven-day wedding ceremony. So Mary and Joseph are somewhere in that year period still betrothed. That means something. That means they haven't even known what marriage is like. They haven't taken that adult-like step in their life. They haven't got to enjoy all the blessed complexities of a marriage union. They're inexperienced. They're young. They're from an insignificant town. They're lowly in stature. They're humble by all accounts, and yet it's this couple that God chooses. It's this couple that God sends His angel to tell them, I'm choosing you for a great task. You get to give birth to and raise the Lord God. I think this is rather significant for us to remember that Mary and Joseph, they're not like a royal family. They're not like a priestly family. That makes sense to us they're humble and they're a faithful couple committed to God in the most humblest of ways and so we do have a natural question why did God choose them they're not rich they're not powerful they're not popular not well-known not influential they're not significant in the world's eyes they're not great by the world's definitions they're not even like Zachariah and Elizabeth a priestly family so why are they chosen But we know the virgin part. We have the answer to that. We know why God chose a virgin to fulfill the scriptural and the theological implications of the Messiah being born of a virgin and to prove that what is happening in their life is only something God can do. But what I mean to ask is, out of all of the virgins, why Mary? Out of all of the virgin betrothed couples, why this couple? Out of the millions of candidates that God could have cho- chosen from in the world. The millions of virgins. The thousands of virgins in Israel. Why did God choose Mary and Joseph? I believe the answer lies in the angel's greeting to Mary and Joseph. I think what the angel has to say next in this passage shows us why God chose them. And I think it shows us why Mary has such faith in God. Look at verse 28. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Unlike with Zechariah, where the angel appeared to him in the temple, this time he seems to just encounter Mary in a more normal way, in a more normal setting. In fact, the New American Standard Bible says that he came into her, indicating that he came into her house. So what we find here is this angel is approaching Mary, probably while she's doing The typical chores of a young Jewish girl who's betrothed. And he catches her off guard. And he has this unusual greeting. And it's unusual for Mary for two specific reasons. First, in this day and time, people don't just walk up to young girls and speak to them. Especially men. And they definitely don't walk up to young betrothed girls and speak to them. Without first getting permission from their husband. Because it's seen as a challenge to their fiance. And so for Mary, she's troubled. She's confused by merely this angel speaking to her. Because for her, it's total taboo. makes no social sense. But the second reason that this greeting is unusual for Mary. Is that it's not an ordinary greeting, is it? He calls her the favored one and tells her that the Lord is with her. That's a, that's a factual statement. It's not a wishful statement. May the Lord be with you. Which is a customary greeting. It's a factual statement. The Lord is with you. And it doesn't direct her attention to a what? A set of outcomes. Why am, are you here to speak to me? It directs her attention to a whom? The personal involvement of the Lord who is with you. That's not something Mary would expect to hear. In her day and time. Where you and I know now on this side of the cross. And on this side of the New Testament. This side of Jesus coming. We know that God is with us always. Right? He's made that promise to us. In Mary's time, that hasn't been made yet. That promise has not been made. So in her mind, she would have been hearkened back to God meeting with Moses. And God meeting with other Old Testament prophets. And she would have remembered the significance that God doesn't just meet with people. Why is He here with me? You add to this message what the angel says to her twice in verse 28 and verse 30. Verse 28, he says, you're the favored one. And in verse 30, he says, you have found favor with God. That is extremely impactful for Mary because of what the word favored means. An old Bible translation translated it as favored but the word literally means grace. The angel looks at Mary and says, you have been favored with grace. Well, now we can understand why Mary's confused. Now we begin to understand why Mary is caught off guard. She's minding her own business, probably doing her own chores, and all of a sudden, this person begins to talk to her and says, you've been favored with grace and the Lord God is with you. What does that mean? He doesn't just meet with people. Not in Mary's time. He doesn't just pour His grace out on people like this. Not in Mary's time. Of course, she's confused. Verse 29, 29. Of course, she's greatly troubled in trying to understand what this greeting might be. What does it mean? Mary's fear and confusion, it doesn't come from what she saw Like with Zechariah, when he saw the angel and was afraid, it comes from what she heard. You've been favored with grace and God is with you. The word here that Luke uses to describe Mary's troubled state is stronger than the word he uses to describe Zechariah's fear. It's stronger than the other words that's used when people encounter heavenly creatures and are afraid. In fact, this is the only time the word's used in the Bible. And it's interesting to me that a person with the most faith is more perplexed and more fearful at the greeting of an angel than those with little or no faith at all. Because they understand what it means that the Lord is with them. They understand the significance that God is showing them grace. And so why out of all of the virgins did God choose Mary? Because He favored her with grace. Nothing in her own life deserved God's attention. Nothing of her own merit, her own ability, deserved the right to give birth to Christ. God was gracious to Mary. She knows this. Why can Mary submit to God in faith? That's our question for this morning. What makes Mary so faithful in the face of seemingly impossible human circumstances? It's because she was impacted and changed by God's grace. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary is a dispenser of grace, that she's a giver of grace. They pray to Mary for grace. They pray to Mary to let them into heaven. They pray for their deceased ones to let For Mary to let them into heaven, they think Mary dispenses grace, but that's not what we find in the passage, is it? Mary's not a dispenser of grace. She's a recipient of grace. That's why she's so astonished. That's why she's so amazed. That's why she's so perplexed. Because she's not more holy than anyone else. She's not perfect. She is a sinner like everyone else. And God was being gracious to her. And she knows this. In her mind, she's a simple, imperfect, unworthy young girl from an insignificant town that no one's ever heard of. Why would God show her grace? Why would God be with her? You begin to see Mary's heart well up with appreciation to God. Gratitude and thankfulness to God. So undeserving. I'm not like the rich people of the day. I'm not the powerful people of the day. I'm a young girl. And yet, You've shown grace to me. you promised to be with me. It's an awesome God, is it not? A gracious, amazing God. This troubled confusion of Mary, that's the natural response. Of a humble person who has great reverence for God. Of a person who has a high view of God and realizes their humble estate before Him, their natural response when He shows them grace is perplexity. Why, would you, why are you gracious to me? I'm so undeserving. So not worthy. So Mary, she's been completely and totally impacted by God's grace. Completely moved by God's grace in her life. That He would choose her for such a task as this. That He would send a messenger to say, the Lord is with you. We ask the question again, what helps us in our submitting to God? It's the same thing that helps Mary being impacted by God's grace. Mary has faith in God. Mary trusts in God because if He's willing to show her such grace, Why would He not take care of her in her life? Why would He not be there every step of the way? The same is true for us. You think about the grace shown to us through Christ. You brought nothing to the table. You don't make God more glorious. You don't make God more perfect. You don't make God more worthy. And yet He still loves you enough to save you. You add nothing to Him. You don't deserve, you don't attract anything in God. Nothing of your goodness, nothing of your pure heart, nothing of your well-educated mind attracts God. In fact, everything about you repels God. You're utterly and totally sinful. And yet, while in your sin, Christ loved you, died for you. You think about that grace? You remember that grace? And does that not motivate you to faith in God? Well, certainly it does. Most certainly, the fact that God saves sinners by His grace motivates us. So what's the answer to increasing your faith? It's remembering God's grace. And when you struggle with faith in God, the answer is to remember God's grace. As life throws difficulties at you, as life throws complexities at you, as you have a lot of questions of why and how, remember God's grace. You may not have all the details, but that grace can motivate faith. And that faith is strong. Let's move on to verse 34 and 37. The angel speaks, continues to extend his message to Mary. In verse 31, you've you've been favored with grace, the Lord is with you, verse 31, and you're going to have a son, and He's going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. All these things in verse 32 and 33 describing Christ, He's going to be great. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. The Lord God's going to give to Him a throne. You're not royal in any way, Mary. You have no influence, but the Son that you're going to have is going to be the King of the universe and He's going to reign forever, and His kingdom will have no end for eternity. And Mary's natural response is a genuine curiosity, right? She begins to realize that God's calling her to do something beyond her, something she can't do, something she can't comprehend, and yet she is totally undeterred because she's been impacted by grace. And so in verse 34, she asks a genuine question and it's almost exactly exactly like Zacharias question It's a question of how So what they both ask Zachariah and Elizabeth and they're both asking it for obvious reasons obvious human obstacles Zachariah is too old to have children so how's this going to happen Mary's too young to have children she's a virgin how's this going to happen and yet Mary's response is in glaring contrast to Zechariah's response. Zechariah responds out of doubt and receives discipline. Mary responds out of faith and receives reassurance. That's the difference between the two. Zechariah has little faith. Mary has great faith. Faith that's rooted in the grace that God has shown her. Faith that's rooted in the promise that the Lord is with her. And so she has that sincerely curious question, how? She believed what the angel told her. She believed that all these things were going to come to pass, that they would be true. But she didn't understand how it could happen. How can I have a child without a male being involved? How can I get pregnant outside of marriage? How can I... Do something so contrary to nature, and yet it come to pass. And so the angel explains to her something that she still can't fully understand. The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you, God's gonna overshadow you, and that child you're gonna have is gonna be holy. He'll be called the Son of God, Son of the Most High. Before I go any further, let me just first dispel the barbaric notion that some people believe that God had sexual intercourse with Mary. That is totally false. Utterly disgusting and false. found nowhere in Scripture. And that's even proven by the angel's delicate language and speaking to Mary. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. God's going to overshadow you. He's referring to the Holy Spirit's creative agency in doing a miracle in Mary's womb. This isn't like the mythic gods that the readers of Luke's Gospel would have automatically thought of. All of the mythic gods who had relations with human beings. That's not this God. This God's more powerful than that. He doesn't need human functions to do something. He creates out of nothing. So that's what's going to happen, Mary. A miracle is going to be performed in you. Something unexplainable. Something you won't be in control of. Something beyond... Human reason. The angel even knows that Mary's going to have a hard time understanding this. That it's going to seem impossible. So he gives her an example. That example is Elizabeth. Your relative, Elizabeth. She's in her old age having a son. And God's doing it in her. And she's been pregnant for six months already. And then he gives an important statement to Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary's the Elizabeth is the example of that. Nothing is impossible with God. And what is remarkable, remarkable about that statement is that Mary has no further questions. Not another one arises out of her heart. Not another one arises out of her mind or out of her mouth. She's completely and totally satisfied. She's faced with something that is humanly impossible, that's socially unacceptable, something she's never heard of, something she can't even understand, and yet she's satisfied with the answer that nothing's impossible with God. Okay. I get it. And then Mary gives the greatest response in faith that you find in Scripture. So far up to this point, let's just retract just real quick. She's been surprised by the angel greeting her. Surprised that she's found favor with God. Found grace in God. Surprised that the Lord is with her because she is nobody in her mind. She's surprised at the child that she's going to have. She's surprised by how she's going to have that child in her virginity. And that that child's going to be the long-awaited Messiah. And yet she can respond in verse 38 by saying, Let it be to me according to your word. Mary won't be able to understand the whole situation. She won't be able to even explain that situation to her family and her friends. She'll never understand why God was gracious to her out of all the women in the world. She'll experience persecution even from her husband until the angel speaks to Joseph in Matthew's account and reaffirms him. She'll be labeled an adulterer. She'll be labeled an outcast. She'll endure hardships from the rest of society. She knows that she'll also be laying aside her reputation for the rest of her life. There goes Mary who had a child out of wedlock. And yet, her response is, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be. I'll lay aside my human reasoning. I'll lay aside my future marriage if that has to be the case. I'll lay aside what people think of me. I'll lay aside my reputation for the rest of my life. I'll lay aside my popularity, my influence. Nobody will come to me for advice. I'm the adulterer. I'll lay aside all of that to follow what the Lord has in store for me. What a powerful response. There's no response of faith that's ever been made like Mary's. God has called many people to do many things that they can't understand and none of them have responded with the abandonment and the trust that Mary responds with. The lack of details in this whole story for her, the lack of information, it does not deter her in any way. She wholeheartedly gives herself to the Lord. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your Word. She actually calls herself a slave. I'm a slave to the Lord. That's who I am. Everything about me I give to the Lord. Whatever it is... I belong to the Lord. Whatever He desires me to do, I may never understand all the complexities and all the difficulties that this birth is going to bring, but I will trust the Lord. And don't you think she had the same heart when she saw this baby hanging on the cross bleeding for something He never did? She says, let it be according to the will of the Lord. Your heart's going to be pierced, Mary. Your soul's going to be in pain and anguish because this child that you raise, this child that you love, he's going to suffer and die for no reason other than to save humanity from their sins. He's guiltless, but will be killed as a criminal. Let it be according to the will of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Selfless, faithful response made by one who understands the grace that God is showing her. How else could she get through this? How else could this preteen girl respond to God in such faith? She's been impacted by His grace. He's made a difference in my life. He chose me when I was not worthy to be chosen. He's promised that He's with me when He could be with anyone else. that's what it looks like to submit to God in faith. Not knowing the outcome, not knowing the end goal, not not knowing how it's going to come about, but still trusting God. And that's how Mary could maintain such faith. And such an overwhelming and life changing and inconceivable calling from God. Because she was humble before God. She was moved by God's grace. She was reassured that nothing is impossible with this God who is with me. So we still ask, how can we have faith in God in the midst of our ever-changing lives, our overwhelming lives, and all the difficult things that are thrown at us when we were so unprepared for them? How can we trust in God? By first being humble before the Lord like Mary was. Undeterred, unencumbered by worldly pleasures, totally living the life that God's called you to live. Knowing your humble state before God. Have faith by remembering God's grace given to us through Christ that He would save us when we totally didn't deserve it. And by remembering that nothing is impossible with God. He is the all-sovereign ruler. And if He can show us enough grace to save us from our sins, He can do anything He wants. And that God has promised to be with us. Believer, this morning I, I, I implore you, I encourage you, I exhort you, have the faith of Mary and all of life's complexities and all of the callings of God. No matter what the world thinks of you, trust God. Trust His plan for your life. Trust His calling on, His, on your life. Trust His love for you. Remember the grace He's shown. And for the unbeliever this morning, I exhort you to find the faith of Mary and find it in Christ find it in Jesus you know nothing of genuine faith until you first give yourself to Christ in faith that's a roadblock for so many people so many people who come to church that is the roadblock that's the hindrance they can't trust they have no faith they're going to be like the people in Matthew 7 who stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things for you? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So many churchgoers will be in that position when they stand before Christ because they have not trusted Christ. Hear me clearly. They've believed in Jesus. But they've never trusted in Jesus. That He's faithful and true to His promises. That He'll secure you in the end day. That He'll bring you into salvation with Him. Find the faith of Mary, unbeliever. Because maybe you lack the faith that you need in Jesus. Maybe you lack the faith to believe and trust in Christ's promises that those who come to Him will never be cast out. But today, you can submit to God in faith. You can be saved. You can find the faith of Mary. Trust in Christ. All all throughout life, we're going to face difficulties. All throughout life, unplanned circumstances are going to come up. And all throughout life, God's going to call you to do things you can't understand. He's going to call you to follow Him and submit to Him in faith. I hope and pray you look to Mary's example. No matter what happens, no matter how it goes down, no matter where the destination is, and no matter what anybody thinks of me, family, friends, the world, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to His Word.